please take a seat. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus. We've been working our way, it seems, for the last decade, but it's actually only two years through Genesis and Exodus. Um, and we come to the institution of the Passover, verses 43 to 51 of Exodus and chapter 12. Um, we celebrated the Lord's Supper only a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it would have been apt to have preached that sermon then, but this, you know, I, I do it consequentially in that sense, so we're here today. And we'll pray before we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your words. I thank you for the inestimable privilege of being able to open your words. I thank you that as a church, we pray your word, we sing your words, we read your words, and we proclaim your words. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, our Deliverer, our Redeemer, our Ascended King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose precious name I pray. Amen. So hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 12, reading from verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Chapter 13 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. In seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign, and it shall be to you as a sign over on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your life. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you 
He shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. It shall be a, a, as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. You could really maybe call this message that all you really need to know about the Lord's Supper that I learned from the Passover. And we've been looking for some weeks at chapter 12, um, at the events, the rituals surrounding Passover. Um, we looked at the importance of not having the house sweat, so there's no leaven, there's no, you know, Egypt doesn't cling to us. And we looked at what Philip Wrighton spoke about, about the, you know, the Lord delivering getting them out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of the people. And, uh, and, and we've been looking at the 10th plague starting in chapter 11. So this is the last, I think, of five sermons that have to do with the whole of the events around the Passover. The 10th plague, then the Exodus, the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we've seen in the Institute of the Passover not only what they were to celebrate, why and when. But at the end of chapter 12, it's the who would celebrate the Passover. The who. And we are talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They celebrated the Passover on the first night, and then the next seven days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread came together in the month of Abid, which is in the spring. And there's a third celebration, a third ritual that often took place in the springtime, the consecration of the firstborn. And there are two connections with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One is that it would normally take place in the spring. Um, as we know, human children are born at any time. But if you just go out in the fields just around here, you'll see all those wonderful little herdwicks. They look great, don't they? And they're ever so tame, my dog, my black Labrador, thinks that these herdwicks are black puppies. But they're actually not. But they are, you know, they're, they're wonderfully, you know, it's wonderful to see lambing in the springtime. And for cows, and for sheep, and for goats, birthing time would be in the spring. So it's the same time as when they would celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But also, the second connection as we think of the Exodus, God passing over the firstborn and sparing the firstborn of those who had the blood on the lintel on the doorpost. In keeping with that remembrance, we have the consecration of the firstborn. Those who were spared must be set apart, consecrated, made holy for the Lord. 
So these feasts, these rites are really important. Not just so that we get a sense of what was going on in the Old Testament. As I've said often in Genesis and Exodus, this is our story. This is our story. And it's interesting to get a sense of what was going on. But they help us understand what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrated, we did that only a couple of weeks ago. And the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated in the upper room with his disciples, remember, was the Passover meal. It was a Passover meal. And consequently, the Lord's Supper, sometimes we call it communion, or sometimes the breaking of bread. I grew up in the Brethren, you know, the breaking of bread every Lord's Day. Or other churches call it Eucharist. I think that's covering the, the, the spectrum of what they're called. It means, Eucharist, by the way, means Thanksgiving. They have deep roots in the Passover celebration. They have deep roots in the Passover celebration. So the first, what you might call Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, was a Passover. And consequently, the subsequent Lord's Supper, or communion and remembrance of that Passover evening, have deep roots in the Passover celebration. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But there are six things we learn about the Lord's Supper from the Passover, I think, and the surrounding events. So first of all, Passover and by extension, the Lord's Supper was a family meal. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. It's a meal for the rescued people of God. It's a meal for all the people God rescued. And when we gather around the Lord's table, we do it as the people who have experienced divine deliverance. We've passed from death to life. We have been saved. So it was a great act of unity, and it is a great act of unity. It's not something we just do quickly. It's a great act of unity, the redeemed. And it shall be eaten, verse 46, in one house. A family, a household, or depending on the size of the family, the size of the lamb, you could have several families under one household. But the principle was one lamb for one house. Everyone under the same roof, eating of the same lamb to speak to and reinforce their unity. They were sharing a meal. You think of all the occasions in Scripture where God's people gather around a meal. I didn't have time to do that, but it had been fascinating to do. And how significant, from the beginning to end of Scripture, is this anticipation of a meal. To dwell with God is to feast with him and to feast on him. And that's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? Is that what we're looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth in the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you like food, and I hope you do, you're being biblical. Because you're being as God created you to be. Of course, we can make food idolatrous. And we can eat it in unhealthy ways. But we're meant to love food. 
Lots of things happen around food. Lots of things happen. It's a gift from God. 1 Timothy 4. And it is one of the things we anticipate in the life to come. Now that should make you lick your lips a bit this morning. But what God wants, when God wants to describe fellowship with his people, when God describes fellowship with his people and with himself, vertically, horizontally, he talks about food. So when we take communion, yes, it is that little slither of bread, a small piece of bread, and it's a relatively small cup of juice, but it's to symbolise this gathering together for a meal. So many important things we do in our own life is to gather around food. They gathered in this prototype of the Lord's Supper that is to come for this Passover meal to eat together as a sign of their fellowship together. They, they ate together as a sign of their fellowship together, peace with God, united to one another, and to be nourished and strengthened. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Some, some of us, I genuinely believe this, you know that you come across kindred spirits sometimes. If you weren't Christians, we'd be friends. We'd be friends. You might support the same wonderful football team as I do, for example. My boys do, they had to. Um, you know, it was one of the rituals growing up. Um, but, the, the, but the rest of us maybe not, didn't, didn't, didn't grow up the same. We don't eat the same. Some of us like chocolate, some of us like salad. My joke about chocolate is the new salad didn't go down very well. But you know, we, we do different things for fun. We watch different things. We root for different teams. Sid's team, I think, made it into the Champions League, didn't it? But he's from Newcastle. But we have very different kinds of jobs. We have different levels of education. Some people spend their whole lives within 10 miles of where they were born. They haven't even been out of the county, let alone out of the country. Other people travel all over the world. Some people, you know, I think I've been to a fair few places. I met somebody the other day who'd been to sort of so many countries, more countries than days I've been alive, I think. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, we come together to eat of the bread and we partake of one loaf as one body. So when we celebrate the Lord's table, it is one lamb and one household. Amazing to think of how much we don't have in common, but here we are. We're the, somebody said last week, we're the church of the living God. Should elevate our view of when we gather together on the Lord's day, we gather together as the Lord's people together to worship the living God. We talk a lot in our world about diversity. And there is a good way to, to want diversity, but there is a way that becomes so convoluted and clumsy, it becomes an intolerant sort of diversity. But in the church, we genuinely do have diversity. Under one roof, eating one bread. But it's not, it isn't diversity for the sake of saying, look at how different we are. No, we come together so there is no difference. There is one faith. There's only one faith. There's only one God and Father. There's only one Lord. There's only one hope. There's only one baptism. One God and Father of all. So it's, that is our diversity with people that we wouldn't otherwise know. But when we take communion, when we, take, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there'll be 15-year-old 
boys who have given their lives to the Lord, their professed faith in Christ, who come on the same terms, the same terms as that 80-year-old who's been walking with Christ for 60 years. See, all the congregation of Israel was to partake in this family meal. So every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, is a great and glorious and sometimes messy family reunion. I don't know when, um, how you, you, you may come from a really, really good family unit, some don't. So it's, it's sometimes difficult to talk about your own family unit. And sometimes when you get together with your family, you so look forward to it, or you so dread it. But on, but, 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 on, but on the Lord's Day, when we come together as, as, the, as the children of God, that's what we are. We are a family. The, these are my people. These are my people. These are my people. And I love to be with them. And I'm glad to see them. Some of them drive me a bit bonkers sometimes. And there's a little bit of tension going on over here. Maybe a little tension there. But it's, a, and it's amazing that we get on as well as we do. Think of if you actually had an actual, if you think about your family for a minute, if you, had a, if you had a family reunion every single week, just think about that. Every single week, a family reunion. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> I've moved sky, you know what I mean? But, but here, what happens is one Lord, one faith, one baptism to share this family meal. Some have asked the question, what about children? If this is the family, what about children participating in the Lord's table? When it seemed children participated here in the Passover, at the beginning of chapter 12, it speaks of the whole household coming together. Presumably nursing children, which have been three, up to three and four in that culture, weren't choking down a piece of lamb, I assume. So not all children. And then there's the implicit instructions. That, and there's teaching going on. Children participating, asking questions. Why are we doing this? And the father explaining to the family. So I think there is some age distinction going on. Or it could be a possible point of discontinuity between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. In the, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, that in partic partaking of the Lord's table, we must discern the body. We must cut, you know, examine ourselves to make sure we don't partake in an unworthy manner. So we must be able to discern something about the body of Christ and the body that we're partaking in the bread, which is why children don't come in discriminately and partake of the elements. Um, so there may be some discontinuity between old and new. Not everything is identical. But the point I wanted to make, big picture point, is that the Passover was a family meal for the family of God. Number two, Passover was an exclusive meal. We saw last week in verse 38, remember that beautiful verse about that mixed multitude that went out? And we saw that there weren't only Israelites, but there was a mixed multitude from maybe the Canaanite regions from the north, Egypt, Cush in the south, people that went with them. So there are instructions specific to consider who partakes of the Passover. Is it just the Israelites? Or what about this mixed multitude that went with them? And we see here that the meal is sacred, it's set apart. 
And to say something is sacred doesn't mean that it has magical powers. It means set apart, it's consecrated, it's not common, it's not ordinary. The Passover meal once a year wasn't the ordinary meal you had every day. So there are rules, there were rules in Exodus. Verse 46, you shan't, you shan't take the flesh outside the house. Don't give leftovers, doggy bags to others. And the lamb's bo bones are not to be broken. Well, we know where that is fulfilled. The Christ on the cross, our Passover lamb, not a bone, one of his bones was broken. So it's an exclusive meal. One commentator says helpfully, the exclusion is not a matter of race, but of grace. It's who belongs to the people of God, which is helpful. It, who belongs to the people of God. But in verses 43 and following, briefly, there are five types of people in view. And I think they're very helpful, actually. So in, in a, number one is foreigner, which is the Hebrew word necker. And you'd consider this person as an outsider not to partake of the Passover, you see there. Because that person, the word means neka, it means it doesn't belong to the household of God, N-E-K-A-R. It doesn't belong to the people of God, so it's somebody outside the life of Israel. Secondly, slave, uh, the Hebrew word ebed, E-B-E-D. Um, but if the slave is circumcised, what does that mean? Well, that means that the, the slave is willing and marked out to be part of the household and to be part of the people of Israel. Then they can partake. They partake of the Passover because they're part of the Lord's people. Three, a temporary resident. It's a little difficult in the ESV. In verse 45, it says no foreigner, which is the same English word as in verse 43, but foreigner comes from a different Hebrew word. In verse 43, I just said the Hebrew word is neka. In verse 45, the Hebrew word is toshab, T-O-S-A-B. And in some translations, it's probably more correctly translated as temporary resident. Not just a foreigner who had nothing to do with the people of Israel, but somebody who is a temporary resident visiting for a while. But that person also is not to partake of the Passover. And then fourthly, in verse 45, the hired worker, which is from the Hebrew word sakir, S-A-K-I-R, a day labourer. And if you think of the parable in Matthew 20 of the labourers in the vineyards who received a day's wages to come and plant or reap or harvest, the same idea. Someone who comes, who's not one of the Israelites, but just is hired for a day, for a season and works. But since they're not part of the people of God, they're not to partake of the Passover. And then in uh, verse 48, fifthly, a stranger. If you want the Hebrew word, it's ger, G-E-R. It's somebody that we might call a resident alien. So somebody who is not an Israelite, somebody who's not, not a foreigner, but somebody who has made their home with the Israelites and is not just hired for a short season. Not just a temporary person, but somebody who said, these are my people, identified with the people of God. This is my home. This is to whom I belong. And the instruction for the resident alien is that if he is circumcised, that means he's, he's willing to be part of the community, willing to be part of the people of God, then he can partake. So the Passover, it allows for new people to come in. 
But at the same time, it's fundamentally exclusive because it's if you're part of the Lord's people. Now, exclusive is a bad word in our day. I came from the exclusive brethren, actually. But exclusive, I, you know, it, it's a bad word today. But it simply means, what it means is that the Lord's table is not a table of common grace, but of special grace. We've been talking about that quite a lot recently. The common grace and then the saving grace, there's special grace. The Lord's table is for those who know Yahweh. It's for those who belong to Yahweh. For those who are willing to be identified as belonging to Yahweh. It's not enough to be simply in the vicinity of the Lord's people. It's not enough to be simply in the area. And it's the same thing with the Lord's table. You think of Jesus when the man had done all of these things and kept all of the commandments. And Jesus says, I tell you that you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. You don't inherit the kingdom because you have a church background. There's no halfway covenant. The Lord's table is for those who are willing to say, I belong to Yahweh. I am his child. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This isn't a converting ordinance. We don't invite people in willy-nilly to partake of the Lord's table. It's not a wonderful opportunity to reach out to non-believers and say, if you don't know Christ, then come and take of the Lord's table. It's not a converting ordinance. But when in this church, when we come to the Lord's table, I always ask that non-believers refrain from partaking. Because while there are many things that we can do to welcome one another, we can't do that with the Lord's table. Come, no matter what you think. Come, no matter who you believe in. Let us just come. It's a great opportunity to learn about Jesus. No, it's a table for the family of God. So we see these, these instructions as an exclusive table. Thirdly, Passover was an open table. Have I contradicted myself? Exclusive and open. Well, it was exclusive, but there's an open invitation. We practice an open table, which means that if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join in the, the celebration. But you can enter in. You can enter in if you're willing to join God's people. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament as just ethnic Israel. And it's not until you get to the New Testament that you really belong to God and not be an Israelite. Well, can be, some of that's true. But as we've seen in Genesis 17, that isn't always the case. You could join yourself to the Israel of God even if you weren't a native Israelite. In Genesis 17, with the institution of the Abrahamic Covenant, we saw a slave who belongs to your house is to be circumcised because he is to belong to the people of God. So it's a family meal. It's an international meal. And even from the beginning was a mixed multitude. It was never a meal that was supposed to be for one ethnic group. Even in the Old Testament, there was Israelites, maybe Cushites and Egyptians. If you're willing to be circumcised and says, these are my people, this is my home, the meal is open to such a one. 
In Revelation 3 verse 20, we've been looking at that. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you understand that, my dear friend? This is the invitation. You don't have to be on the outside looking in. You don't have to be on the outside looking in. I was talking about the Lord's table being an exclusive table for those who belong to Christ. But for any who do not know Christ, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, there is an open invitation every single minute of every single day to come to Christ. To speak to a friend. Ask, what, what is he talking about? And hear the invitation from God. The Lord's table is not a table for white people. It's not a table for middle class people. It's not a table for the, un, for the educated. It's not a table for the uneducated. It is a table for saved sinners. Precious, precious blood of Jesus. Shed on Calvary. Shed for rebels. Shed for sinners. Shed for me. So if you would be a saved sinner when you celebrate the Lord's table, it is for you. And fourthly, Passover reminds us of our need for redemption. There's a huge amount of theology in these last few weeks. It's been a huge amount of theology. We've had occasion to already talk about the atonement, about the substitution, about the expiation, the removal of guilt, propitiation, the turning away of wrath. We've talked about adoption. People of, who aren't the people of God coming in to be included with the people of God. We've been talking about sanctification, cleansing out the old leaven, living as a new people, getting out of Egypt and getting Egypt out of you. But we come to this, another theological category, redemption. And what does redemption mean? You probably know, purchase, buy back. If you grew up in the church, redemption is such a Christian veneer about it, we forget what it means. It was a purchase. It was a buyback. And we have in, instruction in chapter 13 for the redemption. Redemption of the firstborn. The firstborn were set apart. They would be given to the Lord. Animal and human. The firstborn man. And you see immediately the connection with the Passover where God sent the angel of the Lord to strike down the firstborn male. Those among people and beasts. The firstborn belonged to God. And the firstborn had special rights, special privileges, special responsibilities. The firstborn represented the rest of the family. So the firstborn is the symbol to say this family is God's and God has redeemed them. The firstborn is the symbol that this family has been bought by God. So if you had an animal that would normally be sacrificed like a lamb or a goat or a bull, the firstborn was sacrificed to the Lord. But do you see that as really, really important? The donkey, because you don't eat it, it's not a sacrifice. No, you substituted a lamb in its place. Or you broke its neck and killed it. And later in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you get more instructions. There are five other places, twice in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, where we have further instructions about the law of the firstborn. But the firstborn is the Lord's clean animals, you sacrifice them, and unclean animals must be redeemed. 
It means that something must be substituted in their place. So the clean animals were, sub, you know, were sacrificed, but the unclean had to be substituted for. I don't know 100% what we're to make of this theologically, but human beings in this category are in the category of unclean animals. Fallen human beings. Clean animals can be sacrificed, unclean must have a substitute. And that's where we are. We're in the same category. We're in the same category as donkeys. Go and work that out. Pastor called me a donkey this morning. Well, he called himself one first. In Numbers 18, the redemption price is five shekels of silver. And Jesus, after his birth, they went to the temple to present not only the sacrifice, but the redemption price for a firstborn son. Life restored must be brought back. Life restored must be brought back. You have a firstborn son who belongs to the Lord. If you want him five shekels or a lamb, you need to buy him back. And that adds something to the language of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You're not your own. Somebody bought you. Somebody redeemed you. Somebody came forward and gave the purchase price. Because you're not your own. And what we see in the law of the consecration of a firstborn is that God's ownership extends to what is first and what is best. It's not to say God doesn't own everything. But with the firstborn it is saying what is first and best belongs to me. Now, as parents, this should be with joy. This, this ritual reinforces that our children don't really belong to us. We're stewards. Of course they're ours and we love them dearly. But God lets us have them for a time. God lets us have them for a time as he sees fit. But in the law of the firstborn, the Lord is saying, mine, mine. What is more precious to you and, and your children? What would you give anything and everything for except for your children? And God says they are mine. Your firstborn. Your very firstborn. And all that excitement, that energy, that nervousness. You have your firstborn. Your firstborn. And God says, mine. Symbolic of all the others, of course, but mine. That one is mine. You need to substitute. You need to buy back. You need to redeem. It's a hard word, but you know what a good word it is. Because there is no better parent than our Heavenly Father. Some might take umbrage and say, what, God takes my children? No, your children get a God. God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God who promises to be a God to us and to our children after us. Even our most beloved prize belongs to God. Even that most precious thing belongs to God. And who better to own them than God? Who better to own your children than God? And as we get into this New Testament, the New Testament, this firstborn language applies to Christ. The firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn of many brethren. The firstborn over all creation. 
Hebrew says that we are the assembly of the firstborn. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm, well, I'm not firstborn, I'm thirdborn, and most of you aren't first, maybe. But if you know the Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one, the son that our father didn't hold on to, we have a father who gave up his son. How much more then can we be called the church of the firstborn? All of those rights, all of those privileges, purchased, bought, redeemed. So Passover reminds us of our need for redemption. And fifthly, Passover calls us to remember. The point of Passover is that the memory preserved would, keep, would lead to the covenant kept. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 9, shall be to you as a sign in your hand and a memorial between your eyes. In verse 16, the consecration of the firstborn, a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. But do you notice the refrain of what we are to remember? Verse 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 9, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And verse 14, when your son asks you what does this mean, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And verse 16, shall be a mark on your hand of its front lips between your eyes, because by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Four times, why? Because as, as you notice in verse 5 and verse 11, these instructions are anticipating the people of God entering the promised land. They're going to be Canaanites and Hivites and the rest of them and mosquito bites and all of the rest. And it's going to be all sorts of fearful things. And they're going to be as giants in the land. And God says, I want you to remember. And they don't even know what's coming. Do you ever been in that place where you don't know what's coming? You don't know what's coming. And they didn't know they had 40 years of wandering before they got there. 40 years of wandering before they got there. But he wanted them to know, remember, with a strong hand, we don't serve a weak God. Whatever you face, whatever you have coming, whatever tomorrow brings, whatever you wish, and I wish I knew some things I don't know, remember, that I've been with you with a strong hand to bring you out of Egypt, to save you. So do this in remembrance of me. Will you remember that God gave Jesus for you? That he has saved you, that he leads you, and that he guides you with a strong hand. And when we celebrate as the family of God in your, whatever church you're a part of, the Lord's table, we remember what he has forgiven. And we remember how he has loved us. That Christ in heaven still comes to wash our feet. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We've heard that a lot this month, haven't we? Not to be served, but to serve. But the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. But the roles have not been reversed, though. He is in heaven and we're on earth. And such is the measure of his love for us. Christ in the Lord's table is the meal and our host. We feast upon him spiritually in the bread and the cup and he sets the table for us. He invites us here. He gathers us. We gather in his name. 
He is the host, the God of the universe. Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, inviting us to a celebration. Would you like to feast on me? Believe in me. Have your sins forgiven by me. To the Passover and the Lord's table, call us to remember. And sixthly, Passover expects us to speak. You see the instructions to tell the family. You shall tell your son. Your son will ask you. So it's the Passover and then the past down. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Psalm 78 verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So Passover was an opportunity for instruction, not just quiet remembrance, but constant speech. So when we come in our churches to the Lord's table, we see and we speak. Even though I'm the one saying and you listen, we're all saying something. Something to tell your children, something to tell the world, that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see something and we speak that Jesus died and is coming again. I say it every time. We have a glorious hope. We're on a journey to a destination. We're not on a journey in a, in a circle. The journey's not about the journey. The journey's about the destination. So we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus is coming again. We, even Christians believe like they don't believe that. They, they, you know, they behave like Jesus isn't coming again. But that's our glorious hope. But he's coming again in judgment when every knee will bow. All the crazy. If you think about the social media, if you think about the craziness of the world we live in, where people don't even know what a woman is, he is coming again. He is coming again and he is going to judge. But, but, but every knee will bow. Bow the knee to Jesus today while it is still the day of grace. But that's one of the things that we have to say every Sunday among all of the things that we might say. We say that Jesus died for sinners and Jesus is coming again. So next week, when somebody says, what do you do on Sunday? What, what, did, what was church about last Sunday? Yeah, Jesus died for sinners and he's coming again. And what's it going to be about next Sunday? Jesus died for sinners and he's coming again. And what's going to come on the Sunday after that? Jesus died for sinners and he's coming again. Because he did. He died for sinners and he's coming again. And we proclaim his death. And if they co commemorated the exodus from Egypt, how much more should we celebrate our deliverance from the devil? They were saved by the angel of the Lord. We are saved from God's wrath. I don't care what people say about that being something else. We are, God is angry at sin. And we're saved from the wrath of God. And they were set free from Pharaoh. And we have been set free from sin. They ate the unleavened bread underneath the blood of the lamb. So we partake of the, the bread and the cup. And we remember and we celebrate. And we speak of the cross. And that the tomb is empty. And on Ascension Sunday, he has ascended into heaven. And he ever lives to intercede for us. Isn't that good news? That's, and that's good news to go and tell people, what, you know, what did you hear about today? Well, Jesus died, 
and he's coming again. Hallelujah. Amen.